So I wanted to continue our chat from last week. And I'll give a, just a brief reminder of what we talked about last week. If you missed last week's, it's already up on Podbean, Wednesday Wake Up, and you can find it there. And uh, there was a, a couple questions from last week that I'm going to try and incorporate into what we talked about, um, I mean, what we're going to talk about to get those questions answered. I will have a little question for you, so have a piece of paper and pen and or journal somewhere nearby uh, for 10 or 15 minutes from now and just to if you want to participate in that way so last week we talked about qualities of heart and mind and how to sustain them we talked about mindfulness in particular and we talked about investigation which is also called discernment or curiosity so that's what we did last week and the reason we talked about that is that the buddha invites us to do three things with our heart and mind. The Buddha invites us to cultivate these qualities. And as we learn to cultivate them, the Buddha also invites us to sustain them day to day, moment to moment, and also to balance them in our lives. So there's quite a bit of doing in insight meditation in Vipassana practice, particularly traditional Vipassana practice, that we learn to cultivate through our meditation, but then we learn to sustain things. And what we mean by sustain is bringing mindfulness from just a few fleeting moments to an entire daily or life experience. We go from mindful into the mindful moment into mindful living. We go from compassionate moment to compassionate life. And so we start with learning to cultivate moment to moment these heart-mind qualities, which the Buddha invited us to consider uh, that they were required for liberation, for awakening. And we take these qualities and we learn to sustain them for longer and longer periods of time, so much so that they begin to arise spontaneously in our lives from moment to moment. And we really begin to live them. Being mindful can happen for two or three minutes on the cushion, but what happens when we leave the cushion? How do we bring mindfulness from one moment to another? How do we bring compassionate into our day when things are so challenging and so stressful and so unpredictable? And that's really where the rubber meets the road for meditation practice, where we move from cultivating smaller moments to really living uh, these qualities of heart and mind that lead to and are uh, the foundation for awakening. So last week we talked about sustaining mindfulness and we did all kinds of tips and tricks. So if that's uh, something that interests you, hit, the, hit up the podcast for that one. And then we talked about discernment and investigation and how to bring that more clearly from moment to moment. So today I want to talk about equanimity. Equanimity is such a huge part of the Dharma. Equanimity is, is a significant part of American Buddhism, for sure, and modern mindfulness. Uh, equanimity is just such a huge focus. So I thought I would offer some, what I think are some unique and rarer uh, frameworks for understanding equanimity and how we can invite equanimity to stay with us longer from moment to moment and what that looks like in life and why is that beneficial to have this thing that we call equanimity. Now, in order to do that, I wanted to make a clarification, which came from a question at the end of the talk last week. And uh, when we talked about investigation, someone had asked last week, I don't think they're here today. I don't see, their, see them up on the screen. Um, someone had asked about how is it that we can investigate and be present at the same time? How is it that I can be non-reactive and mindful 
and just watch what is arising and passing away while simultaneously being asked to investigate, to explore, uh, to look and see what's going on and to maybe even make changes uh, in the moment. And so that brought up, this is a huge question in the Dharma uh, and, and it leads to a big misunderstanding of the relationship between mindfulness, equanimity, and investigation. So I want to clarify this relationship again because this really is the core of the Buddha's insight. And uh, because I rely so heavily on traditional Buddhism, it is the core of what I teach. So I teach all seven enlightenment factors where oftentimes um, teachers will focus just on one or two factors of awakening. So I try to incorporate all seven, um, which is why my talks are so long and <laughs> so convoluted because uh, there's so many more things to, to take into account. So um, let me clarify the difference between mindfulness, equanimity, and investigation, and also um, let you know that if you go to the podcast, there is a talk on this very subject. So there's a full Dharma talk on this distinction. And if you haven't listened or were not present for that, it's really important um, as far as understanding the broader context of, of the Dharma. So here are the three definitions of these, of these heart-mind factors, these qualities of consciousness. So mindfulness, mindfulness is our ability to intentionally keep something in mind, to bring an object into awareness, as we say, to bring something in mind. So bringing the sensations of the hands in mind, bringing the mood into mind, um, bringing body sensations into mind, uh, watching thoughts, right? Bringing thoughts into awareness and noticing those thoughts. So mindfulness traditionally is simply our ability. It's the mental muscle that allows us to intentionally say, hey, I'm gonna be aware of this. I'm gonna be aware of breathing right here that's my mindfulness. Mindfulness is simply the ability to hold something intentionally in awareness. The challenge with, with that definition is most of the time in American Buddhism and in the modern mindfulness movement, mindfulness is defined as loving, accepting, non-judgmental awareness. Loving, accepting, non-judgmental awareness. Actually, that definition is equanimity. Equanimity is loving, accepting, non-judgmental awareness. Mindfulness is the ability to keep something in mind. So in our meditation, we combine mindfulness with equanimity to get a loving, accepting, non-judgmental awareness. But the Buddha separated those two traits, those two values, those two habits. And the reason that they're separated is that it's possible to be mindful and not equanimous. I can, be a, I can be very mindful that I have a pain in my body and really be disliking and averse to that pain. So that wouldn't be equanimity. That would not be loving, accepting awareness. So I can be mindful without being equanimous. So it's really important to know that one can have equanimity um, and those two can be separated. And the reason the Buddha separated them, because if you do not separate them, then it's hard to be able to practice and to be acknowledging of the fact that sometimes I can be awake and aware to anger, but completely lose the balance of my mind. I can be aware that I'm very aversive, angry, um, grudgy, uh, tired, sleepy, excited, but I might be completely out of balance. So we look at those as two factors that have to be developed because they don't always exist together. Investigation is our ability to look into the present moment and ask ourselves, what role am I playing in shaping this experience? How am I participating in this moment to create what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, 
how my posture is being held. So mindfulness is what gives us access to the present. Mindfulness is the doorway to the present. Equanimity says, once you're present with mindfulness, why don't you lean in a little bit? Why don't you accept what's arising in the present moment long enough to really and fully understand what in fact is happening? And once you're able to, with equanimity, stay in the present moment, even with things that we don't like, then we have an opportunity to truly investigate them. So mindfulness, being present, right? Equanimity, holding and accepting what is arising in the present with a loving and non-judgmental attitude. And then investigating what that situation is and exploring how we are relating to what's arising. How are we participating in what's arising? And I can give you the, the example. Let us say I'm angry. I bring anger into awareness, all right? That's my intentional mindfulness. Like, oh, I'm feeling really angry. Okay, let me be mindful of my anger. So I bring mindfulness into awareness. And then I decide, wow, this is really uncomfortable, but I'm going to stay with it. I'm really frustrated right now, but I'm going to stay with the sensation. And I'm going to see if I can just accept that in this moment, my chest is feeling tight. I'm feeling a little heated. Maybe my muscles are tense. And I'm going to see if I can bring some equanimity and just accept, okay, in this moment, I'm angry. So now we have mindfulness and equanimity, hand in hand, working to be awake and aware to what's arising. Third part, investigation. What's going on here with this anger? What role am I playing? Oh, wait, I'm noticing that there's some thoughts. And these thoughts are saying this person shouldn't have done that. This person is such and such. How can this be happening to me? Suddenly I'm noticing that my view and my thinking is playing a role in the experience of being angry. That anger is not just happening to me, but I am actually participating in co-creating or fabricating the experience. So then I can skillfully take on a different view or take on a different thought and watch the experience change. If I bring my anger into awareness and I run away from it because I don't want to be angry right now, I can't, the thought of being angry is inconvenient. If I run away from the anger and I do not hold it with equanimity, then I don't get deeper into the investigation to see, oh my gosh, underneath that anger, I had this whole kind of view where I was judging this, this person. Now I've got an avenue to freedom. Now I have an avenue to awakening because multiple heart qualities are now interacting together to produce an experience where I can be free, where I can become self-aware and I can choose love instead of anger. I can choose calm instead of tension. I can choose expansion versus contraction. So that's the difference between mindfulness, equanimity, and investigation. They work together. They're always there working together, but they really are different muscles. So we have different mental muscles that we have to practice using. And they're not always there at the same time. Sometimes I could be mindful of an emotion. I can be equanimous, but I just don't have the clarity to investigate what role I'm playing. Maybe my ego's in the way. Maybe I'm saying, this isn't my fault. I'm not involved in this moment. Someone else is in charge. So you never know what will happen with investigation. So those are the three. And I just wanted to throw those out there um, because we're gonna talk about equanimity and I wanted to make sure we're all on the same page with, with equanimity. So equanimity is our loving, accepting, non-judgmental awareness. Sometimes uh, we describe it as just watching or noting things as they pass away oh, look, there's some thoughts arising. We note them and they pass away. We can also call equanimity letting go. We can also call it non-reactivity or non-judgment. 
So something arises and we don't judge it. I'm feeling a certain way and I don't judge myself for it. Maybe I'm really upset in this moment and I have a story in my life that says uh, being upset is a, a type of weakness and I should be stronger. Equanimity says, how about we just let, let sadness arise and we don't pass judgment on what it means to be sad in this moment. Non-judgmental awareness. We bring a non-judgmental attitude of our heart to what is arising in the present. Now, of course, it sounds easy <laughs> talking about it, but it's not easy. Equanimity is very challenging for us to develop. It's very challenging to sustain, but the freedom that we get from developing it is well worth the efforts uh, to practice, to cultivate, to sustain, and to get a balanced sense of that in our life. The primary reason that equanimity, this is going to be pretty straightforward, but I'm going to say it anyway. The primary reason that equanimity is so challenging is that it asks us to be present with things we don't like. Equanimity is asking us to lean in to what we would normally push away. It's asking us to open versus contract. And it's our natural tendency in order to survive in the world that when something that we don't like or something that is hurtful or distasteful arises, we have this instinctual response to run away, to push away. And that's, we needed that to be safe, right? It keeps us safe, it keeps us secure. But at a deeper level, we can get into this habit of not accepting the smaller things that we probably could be equanimous to and it causes more suffering in our life. It causes more agitation where we might have an opportunity or an avenue for some freedom, for some spaciousness, for some pleasure instead of some pain, some dukkha, some stress or discontent. So even though it's natural to do, it's equally natural to have a spiritual approach to equanimity and cultivate it so it's stronger. In, um, in Western psychology, we refer to equanimity as resilience right, or distress tolerance. And what they've done is they've done studies that show people who report higher levels of happiness day to day also report that they have a higher distress tolerance. They have a higher resilience to being uncomfortable, to managing problems when they arise. And when something arises and they dislike it, they have an easier time just accepting that they're disliking it and they tend to move on without it derailing or carrying over into moments and moments throughout the day. So this is really important um, as far as your happiness level. Cultivating re resilience or distress tolerance that we refer to as equanimity in Buddhist psychology is, is really huge. Now, as I was saying, it's so challenging to do because we're asking our hearts and minds to open up to things that are uncomfortable, right? We're opening up to things that cause us discontent and frustration. And we spend our lives, if you think about it, cultivating lives of comfort. We practice being comfortable. We wanna do our best to be comfortable. We don't wanna be uncomfortable. And so we train our hearts and minds to seek out comfort all the time, right? We're constantly seeking out comfort. As soon as we're hungry, we reach for the snack. As soon as the temperature isn't to our liking, we turn on the AC, we put on the, the coat, put on the raincoat, grab the umbrella. If the weather is not to our liking, we immediately shift to protect ourselves to get comfortable. If we're bored, oh my gosh, these days, as soon as we're bored, right? We don't say, oh, I'm bored and this is uncomfortable. We turn on the TV, we go to Netflix, we go to Amazon, we call someone, we play some music, we're on the iPad, the iPod, the apps, podcasts, and so on. So we're constantly in the face of discomfort 
immediately trying to customize the present moment to our liking. And so much of that happens without even thinking about it. Think about how many times in the last 45 minutes that you've switched your posture in your chair because the body is like, you know, I want it to be a little bit more here, a little bit more there. I want to lean back. I want the blanket. I want the cat. Our bodies and, and minds are constantly adjusting for comfort. It's a natural part of what it is to be human. But there's a shadow side, which is we can lose our tolerance of being in distress. We can lose our tolerance for the little agitating things. And our lives just become one moment after another, striving to have an equilibrium, striving to be comfortable. And the challenge with that is the world is impermanent. The world is always changing. And because it's always changing, we're always one step behind being comfortable. The weather is changing, our lives are changing, things are going good and things are going bad. And we're constantly trying to keep up with this ever moving train of anicca, of impermanence, as we say in the Dharma. So whether it's temperature or food or physical discomfort or heart discomfort, whether we're bored and we have to reach out to change the mood or we buy something, we're bored and so we go out shopping or we go out to buy something, we're on this constant quest to push away from anything that is uncomfortable. And the Dharma is inviting us to do something completely revolutionary. The Dharma is saying, you know what? The true freedom lies beyond the discomfort not necessarily in eradicating it, but transcending it. And that there is a greater pleasure, a greater freedom, a greater happiness beyond the discontent if you can bring mindfulness, equanimity, and investigation to, to the present moment. There's always going to be a better product. There's always going to be a newer product, something that can be more comforting, get our lives more in order, more organized. There's always going to be something the iPhone seems great, but then there's the iPhone 5 and the iPhone 10, and there's always going to be something that's just a little more comforting, a little more enticing to, for us. And we're going to chase it because that's what we do. We're like, you know, dogs and cats. We run after the ball. If someone throws it, we're going to run. We're going to find the newest thing. We're always looking for the newest stimulating experience um, to get us out of the present moment, which oftentimes we find not very exciting. This is where intoxicants come in, right? the intoxicant of TV, music, drugs, alcohol, whatever the case may be, some kind of stimulation we're going to seek out to make this moment better than it was two seconds ago. So that's why equanimity is so challenging. And simultaneously, it's why it's so important. It's so important because it's so much of our lives is driven toward these creature comforts. And we get on this sort of hamster wheel of striving, but never being able to get off. We strive for comfort, but we're always one step behind. So I'm gonna invite you to do a little reflection and then I'm gonna give you some tips and tricks around this. So the question I have, I have a few questions, or two questions, I guess, two and a half questions. Um, so the first question is pretty simple. On a scale of one to 10, with 10 being very successful consistently and one being not so successful in your opinion, how well do you feel you tolerate things that you dislike? When something enters your heart, enters your mind, a circumstance arises, how well do you feel like you tolerate a moment where something has arisen that you don't really like? Just a general sense when you think of yourself as a person moving through the world. 
And then I want you to, to go a little deeper and ask yourself this, what are, you write two or three down, depending, or you may have a lot. <laughs> uh, what are your biggest pet peeves? Think in terms of people, circumstances, physical conditions, uh, things that lack in your life. Like for example, um, when you don't get something, there's a, a sense of like agitation. Like you have to have coffee in the morning. If you don't have your coffee, there's agitation, right? could be something simple, but what are your irritants? What are the most common three to four things that when they're present, there's gonna be an absence of equanimity? What are your triggers that cause you to lose the balance of your mind? Because as humans, we love to customize these things, right? We love to have these little things that are part of our personalities that really cause us to lose the balance of our mind. We all have these pet peeves, these things that send us up the wall where the thought of being equanimous is just off the table. So just take three minutes just to uh, write a few down, reflect on that. So I wanted to just give some perspective on equanimity from a Dharma perspective and and see if this might be helpful as frameworks. And again, the context here is how do we take equanimity and, and practice it? How do we sustain this heart quality um, that the Buddha calls one of the factors of enlightenment? So that's you know another thing to remember that the not only are we seeing it in Western psychology correlative to happiness, the Buddha also 3,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago was like, you know, I got a bunch of stuff that irritates me. Imagine if it didn't, what my happiness level would be. So here we are seeing this really important heart-mind quality um, to cultivate. So of course, the first thing I'm going to say is to be mindful of the physicality of the experience. This is why I, I really emphasize the first foundation of mindfulness. It's why I emphasize full body awareness and whole body awareness, because we have to remember that to the degree we can really inhabit our bodies, really get in there and feel what is happening, that's really what allows that present moment to open up, to deeply feel. And oftentimes when we're dis disquieted, discomfort, um, when we have this dukkha, our, our mind does not go into the body, it goes out. It wants to escape, it wants to go somewhere else. It doesn't wanna go deeper into the sensation. So this is really completely counterintuitive, but in the Dharma, when we feel discontent, when we feel dukkha, the first and foremost thing, bring awareness into the body. And we ask ourselves, how do I know I'm feeling uncomfortable? Locate the sensations and bring awareness to the sensations. This is really the standard fare for Dharma, but it's really easy to forget that when we're angry, when we're upset, when we're the t someone's on the TV or someone's judging us, go straight to body. What is the body doing? What is the body saying? And how do I know I'm annoyed by this? Where is the annoyance live in the body? For each person, it's different. It could be the chest, it could be the arms, it could be a contraction somewhere, an expansion somewhere else. Getting to know how your physical body reacts to distress allows us a baseline to work with equanimity. So that's gonna be our, our foundation uh, for this type of thing is practicing returning to body in times of discontent. That will help us to bring equanimity quicker and more consistently into the moment, which means whatever the experience is, even if you don't get past that one, even if you don't get past bringing awareness to the body, if you continue to practice that, you will have less pain and less stress in life if you can just do that part of it because the discontent won't last as long and it won't be as sharp and stingy if there's awareness grounded in the body. 
So always remember full body awareness, bring that awareness into the body when there's discontent. Um, the other thing to do again, which is counterintuitive, but is a wonderful practice. Anytime you notice that there is discontent and the best way to do this is to practice this with easy things. I'm not talking about really big ordeals, but when you find that your body or your heart or your mind is feeling disquieted about something, wait a few minutes before you make the change. Before you change the circumstance, be present with what the circumstance is. So the easiest example is temperature shift. I woke up this morning, it was a little bit colder than usual. I started walking downstairs and I realized I had, didn't have socks on because the day before was a little warm and I could feel my feet being cold. And I thought, oh, I don't want my feet to be cold right now. And I didn't apply mindfulness or equanimity. I turned right back around before I got down the stairs and put on socks. Now, <laughs> a more skillful way of doing that could have been waiting and feel the cold on the feet and be like, wow, this is really, is it really that uncomfortable? And really taking two, three minutes to be with the discontent. That training is priceless if you do that. Um, I did not do it today, but I have done it in the past. And so I know that these small things are really helpful. Find the little things that you know you can tolerate, but don't and practice leaning in, holding it in your body and waiting two or three minutes before you put on the coat or before you distract yourself with something. Another way is like oftentimes people get in their cars and before they even do anything, they've got the podcast ready or the music ready or something. That's because the present moment is going to feel boring without the sensory stimulation. What if you made a commitment to spend the first five minutes or 10 minutes of the commute, if it's a longer commute, not doing that and then turning on the radio or the distraction. Things like that that you know you can handle will train the mind to look towards discontent as an opportunity of awakening rather than an opportunity to run back up the stairs and put on your socks. Um, in an, it, which seems like an emergency, but is totally not an emergency. So take the time to train your mind to do that. Again, this we call this cueing mindfulness, right? Look for opportunities for continuity, and this is a great way of doing it. Another thing to keep in mind is the Buddha talks about skillful views. Oftentimes when we're suffering, we have a view of the world that's at play, that's underneath that we're not aware of in the present moment. And the view is helping us make a decision or a judgment or some type of, uh, well, yeah, decision or judgment about the way things are or should be. And it's really important for us to, when we can, to reflect on the views. Now in Western psychology, they're called core beliefs. Or core beliefs, these underlying beliefs that frame a lot of our other behaviors. It's in the Dharma, we call it wise view or views. Here's a view to, to keep in mind with distress. Every single one of you, every single person in this digital Dharma hall is stronger, more courageous, and more resilient than you think you are. Everybody in this room is stronger, more courageous, and more resilient than you think you are. Human beings have the capacity to adapt, but we don't practice oftentimes. And in this modern age, when we have so many creature comforts, we now train ourselves in the opposite direction, but you are so much more resilient courageous and tolerant of distress than you think you are. And oftentimes it's not until you practice that you realize how much you can tolerate. And again, I'm not talking about self-harm and stuff like this. Of course, there's a context to everything I'm saying, but there's so much more we can tolerate, right? 
I know that I'm that I am capable of not getting mad when someone cuts me off on the freeway. That doesn't mean I don't yell or say something under my breath or out loud for that matter. But I know that I am capable with some practice to really be tolerant and to create a sense of grace and ease in moments like that. And so it's just important to remember how resilient you actually are, right? And how um, the things in your life that you have survived and transcended and worked through. And so just remember that, that courage and that strength that you have innately as a human being and remind yourself of your good traits, right? Remind yourself of the things that you have overcome when you are practicing or leaning into something that's uncomfortable. Because if you're sitting in this room, something, many things have gone really well in your life. And this is in part because you have resilience and adaptability. And you've shown somewhere in here, the ability to change, to grow, to learn, to love. And oftentimes in a moment where we're disliking something, we forget all that, right? We forget all that. And we go with the easy route, which is simply to change the present moment to suit our needs rather than to grow in the Dharma or grow in equanimity. So that's a view. Uh, and I think I highly recommend just to remember that when things are tough, especially in context of practice. Along those lines, there's two questions that you can ask yourself. They're somewhat silly, but they are a part of views. So two questions. One is, when you're finding that you can't tolerate something, you need to remember to ask yourself, is it that I can't tolerate it or that I won't tolerate it? Is it that I can't tolerate it or is it that I won't tolerate it? I don't want to tolerate it. And it's easier probably to think of other people in your life who need to get their way or people in your life that you know who lose the balance of their mind. Sometimes reflecting on your own, you have to kind of backtrack from thinking about other people. But how, how often have you seen something happen in life where someone is intolerant of something and you think to yourself, really, really, you can't tolerate that? Ask yourself that question, like really, I, is this that I just don't wanna tolerate this? Because you really need to get in touch with your skill set. You really need to get in touch with those times where you're out of touch with your own resilience, right? And times when you're like, no, this really is my growth edge. This really sends me up the wall and I need some real uh, wise effort and courage and perseverance and patience here because this thing is really a trigger for me. And so really distinguishing the things that you really can't tolerate and probably need to be worked on or are avenues for awakening, so to speak. And times when you're just like, eh, I just don't feel like tolerating this and I'm gonna go get the socks. So keep that in mind uh, as you walk through and you think about how you might be able to sustain uh, equanimity in your life. These are great questions to ask. The other question to ask is oftentimes uh, a question that's asked when you're trying to have a breakthrough in something that you have not achieved before. So this is called the million dollar question. When you're faced with something you think you can't do, then you ask yourself, if I knew I was going to get a million dollars for being able to achieve this, how much easier would this task be in this moment, right? Because oftentimes we're putting up obstacles because there isn't enough motivation to tolerate the distress. And so we have to train ourselves to have the intrinsic reward is what we call it in psych, an intrinsic reward and the intrinsic reward is equanimity. Do I wanna cultivate equanimity? Because I know cultivating equanimity is a heart quality that can lead to me having a more content existence or do I, do I not want to do that, right? So I can give you an example. When I was in uh, high school, so this is not gonna surprise you, but I was a very heady person in high school. 
very into academics, very didactic in my presentation of, of myself. I love to learn and um, I had good grades, but I wasn't involved in sports. So because all I did was study and, and do that stuff. And my guidance counselor said, you know, you, you have to get involved in some activity because if you want to go to a good college, you need to have, you have to show that you're not just doing studying. You need to be a part of the community and do all this stuff. So I decided to be on the cross country team. This is someone who doesn't have any sports at all. And I decided to run of all things. And I never could do it. Like I'd run a little bit and then I'd start walking. And uh, these races that we had were three miles. And for the entire two years that I was on this cross country team, I not once did I ever finish the three miles without just walking to the end. Um, but I wanted it on my college transcript. So I did it. Um, so years later, when I was in college, years later, like five years later, when I went back to school, uh, my roommate was a runner and was running. And he would run every night. And one time he invited me to do it. And I tried to do it again. And I was like, I can't do this. I've never been able to do it. And he said, if I gave you a million dollars, do you think you could run the three miles? If I gave you a million dollars, could you go run the three miles? And he said, I want you to run and imagine, really, really imagine that if you actually succeed, this is what's going to happen. And I ran the three miles without a problem. And ever since then, these type of questions are really, I, I use these type of questions when I'm having a struggle with something I think I can't achieve or do. I really ask myself, is it that I'm just not motivated? Is the end goal not motivating enough? Is there not enough intrinsic reward to this? Or am I just not caring? I mean, what is the situation? So remember, you're more courageous and more resilient than you think you are. And so when you can't tolerate something or something is a stumbling block in your life, ask yourself, what is, what is on the other side of this? What is on the other side of being less distressed when I'm on hold? I get really distressed if I'm on hold too long. So I don't like being on hold. Customer service is a thing. A lot of us have this issue, but we can ask ourselves, you know, what am I really capable of here? Can I bring this into awareness in a way that can awaken an opportunity for freedom rather than continuing a habit that is going to create more dukkha, more stress, more discontent? So I like to share that. Um, so a million dollar question, find out what it would really take for you to be able to tolerate something uh, what is the reward, the intrinsic reward for being able to show the equanimity to develop uh, and master the skill? Now, there are a few views, as I was saying, that can be helpful. These are ones that Robert talks about a lot. So I don't think any of these are going to be new to you. Um, and again, this talk is being recorded, so you can always go back. But these are some common views that we have. Humans always have these, totally common, very typical um, and it tends to get us into trouble with equanimity. It tends to decrease equanimity and uh, prevent us from being at ease in a time when we actually could be at ease uh, and decrease that stress in our life. So the first thing to ask yourself has to do with the fact that human beings live in the world from this sense of ego, this sense of I, me, mine, as Robert likes to say, the song of the self, I, me, mine, I, me, mine. We come, we walk through the world with this sense of ego. And so when things happen, it's really common for us to say, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? Why isn't it going my way? This should be going my way because the ego is behind the wheel. So when things are happening that we don't like and they enter into awareness, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me now? The ego is the one that actually sets the stage for the, for the distress, which is this shouldn't be happening. I can't believe this is happening. 
And one thing to ask yourself in this moment, in those kind of moments is twofold to kind of get the ego to settle down, to dislodge the ego, get it out of the driver's seat and into the passenger seat for a minute. You can ask yourself this, which is, is this experience common to other humans or is it just happening to me? Is this a common experience? Am I the only one in this moment that's on hold? Am I the only one that's stuck in traffic? Am I the, get out of that state of ego focus and ground yourself back in the human race as a participant in a larger picture and the ego will settle down. Cause oftentimes what the ego is saying is I don't deserve to be on hold. I don't deserve to have my computer crash. And it's all about the I. If we can remind ourselves that in that moment, there's probably 3 million other people who are on hold, who are having tech issues. It's a common experience for human beings. Reground yourself in the human race rather than being consumed by the ego, which is a very small island of self. It's a contracted state when it's why me? Why is this happening to me? This shouldn't be happening to me. It's a very small contracted place where you can't really feel free and breathe. So remind yourself, and I, I have asked that as a question, both to clients when I'm coaching, but also to myself, am I the only one that experiences this? And it's kind of funny. It will, if you do it now that we've talked about it, you'll see the impact that it has. It reminds you that it's not about you, right? It's about the human experience. And sometimes things just don't go our way. A corollary to that is fairness. The ego wants things to be quote unquote fair. Now, as a disclaimer, I'm not talking about social justice, and I will talk about that in a minute, but I'm not talking about social justice stuff. We're talking about psychological discontent that has to do with day-to-day -day living. We're not talking about systemic oppression and that kind of stuff. That's, that's a completely different context. So, so when I say fairness, I'm talking about something happens to you and you say, this isn't fair, which is an expression of saying, I don't like what's happening. What's funny about the ego, if your day is going your way, your ego is thinking, oh, this is fair. This is great. What a fair day. As soon as it doesn't go your way, the ego's like, I can't believe this is happening. It's not fair that I'm stuck in traffic. So as soon as your day is not going well, it's unfair. But when the ego is getting its way, oh, the world is fair up and down. So you have to remember that the ego is often in the driver's seat when we are experiencing discontent. And the ego is saying, I don't like this. I don't want to be here. This isn't fair. The ego has that sort of tantruming that it does when it doesn't get what it wants and be awake and aware to it. And that equanimity will develop if we can start to see that we need to take that uh, ego out of the driver's seat, put it in the back seat or wherever, take it out of the car for that matter. But remember that the ego is driving the car in those moments where we are really feeling there's a lot of I, me, mine going on there. Uh, and the more we can get in touch with those scripts, those, uh, well, sorry, I'm falling into, uh, <laughs> I'm falling into transactional analysis from therapy. Uh, give me a second. Let me get back into Dharma land. Uh, views. We have these views, right? We have these thoughts uh, and views that we have, these unskillful thoughts and views that we use um, that are common. And so take a look, take a look at the ego when it's driving the car. A couple other things I wanted to say. Um, another thing that happens is, is comparison, which means oftentimes we're, when we're in distress, we say to ourselves, if this weren't happening, it would be so much better. If that didn't happen to me, so much would be better. We do this comparison and contrast. We say, you know, my day would be so much better if I wasn't stuck in traffic. My day would have been so much better if we have this imaginary thing that we do where when we're distressed, 
we say, if this moment wasn't happening, the, the other moment would be much, much better, which just increases the, the intolerance of what's happening, right? It takes us out of the situation and makes it worse. It's one of those second arrows. So if you're stuck in traffic and you can be mindful and aware of how it feels in the body, that's going to be much better than saying, oh my gosh, being stuck in traffic is making my day worse. It's going to make this worse and that worse. And now this is happening. So be careful of comparison and contrast when you're feeling discontent about something because the ego is making it worse for itself by making that contrast. And it usually does a future one. It usually says, if this weren't happening, all this other pleasurable stuff, if I wasn't on hold right now, I could be doing yada yada. If my computer was working better, I could be doing. So now you're just punishing yourself for the reality of the situation. You're making it worse. And that again is an ego, an ego thing. The I, me, mind takes over uh, in that case. So those are my tips and tricks that I use all the time. Um, and this is where they come from. I try to collect these kind of things for these moments when we're really trying to get into these type of practices. Um, I wanted to finish with one more thing and I know we're right at time. And uh, like I said, this is like a three-part Dharma talk. So we will continue to talk about the subject, but I wanted to say one last thing to qualify. What I had said earlier was um, there is a spiritual bypass to equanimity. Equanimity does not mean we don't have healthy boundaries. If someone's hurting us, we have healthy boundaries. That's the ethics of the Dharma, right? So equanimity doesn't say, I'm in an unhealthy marriage, I'm in an unhealthy relationship, I'm in an unhealthy job, and I'm just going to lean into that, and I'm going to be equanimous. That would not be skillful. So we have to remember that the equanimity we're building has to do certainly with moment-to-moment -moment discontent, not things like physical abuse or systemic oppression and things like that. So I just want to make that clear that in Dharma over, over time, students and lineage as well have really misunderstood and it becomes sort of either self-flagellation or we blame others and we say, you don't need to have any more rights. You can just be equanimous. You don't need to worry about that person harming you. Why can't you just be spiritual? Why can't you just bring equanimity to it? So we re I really want to emphasize, and we can talk about this later um, in other sessions about spiritual bypass around this, but I, I'm not talking about injustice. I'm talking about the intolerances we experience during our day that make us grouchy and grumpy and close our hearts, right? And contract those kind of things. And we all know the difference. Um, and so I just wanted to point that out because it's not fair to think that uh, someone who's in a terrible situation should just cultivate the enlightenment factor of equanimity and move on. That's just not, that's not how Dharma works. That's just um, unclear boundaries. So I just wanted to clarify that. Um, so it's clear on the recording that we're not talking about. My suggestion is that we do consider this a two, three part experience and that we continue our discussion next week and that we continue uh, on with this um, and that we do some debriefing. I'm gonna ask you to do this. If you, since you do have notebooks, I'm gonna ask yourself um, this this week, take some notes in your journal around the things this week that you notice trigger you. So that's the first thing I'm gonna invite you to do. Do some reflection this week Put it into your phone, into a memo, notebook, toss a post-it on the wall, on the fridge. Notice this week, between now and next time we meet, what are some of the things that in real life get your goat? Let's see something that triggers you this week. And 
take some of these examples that I gave and try using some of them. And let's share next week when we come back and let's talk about how did these work? Did they work at all? Was there some struggle? Did it sort of work? And really take a few of these and try practicing them over the week. And let's share next week about this. Let's dive into this as a practice. And next week when we get together, let's make this a week of really looking at equanimity. Where in my life can I bring the equanimity and where is the distolerance and the distress and the dukkha? And let's see what we can do as a community, as a little group here. And let's share next week. Let's, um, I'll do it with you. I'll take some notes in my journal and I'll do some of these things and I'll, I'll share with you how, how it worked for me uh, this week. Let's take a minute to just close our eyes and, and let's say a few last words and, uh, and we'll go about our evening. Okay. Let's just return to the body. I've been talking at you for quite a while. Let's go back to the body. Take a deep breath in, long and slow, in through the nose and out through the mouth. Back into the body. How is it feeling? Probably gonna be some energy there, maybe some agitation, maybe some pleasure, some expansiveness maybe, some contentment, maybe some equanimity at home and at rest, at peace in the body, in the present moment. We come together week to week in Sangha, which means we share our struggles, we share our successes. We give to each other in silence. We come together and we donate our hearts and our minds. So everyone in this group can awake to more joy, more compassion and more wisdom we practice for ourselves so all beings we come in contact can share in the merits of our transformation, can share in the merits of our practice. We engage in these skills, in these tools, in these meditations, so we can awaken our hearts, so we can awaken our minds, so we can cultivate compassion, so we can cultivate equanimity and wisdom, joy and tranquility, and we practice so all beings can share in our merits. Our highest aspiration is that all beings be free from suffering. May all beings know true joy. May all beings be safe and secure. May all beings find rest in the present where compassion awaits them. We'll give a special shout out as we keep close to our hearts all of the helpers, the medical folks, all those in the helping profession who are working round the clock to save lives, to offer comfort, to offer peace, who are out there to help us if we get sick. May all those people be free from suffering. May they be well. Thank you, my friends. Wonderful evening as always. Practice this week. Give me a shout out. And next week, let's continue right here and uh, let's work with equanimity and then we'll continue as well. Thanks all.